It has become a tradition. Every summer, ever since I turned nine, I would go to visit my dad and his girlfriend. They lived in a small bungalow house that was literally out in the middle of nowhere. We would eat my dad's famous gumbo, go fishing, and then camping. I loved going to see my dad. Something about getting away from the city life and just enjoying the simple things, like being a small farmer, made things more bearable. I pull up to his driveway to see him and Sandy waiting for me. I jump out of the car and hug Sandy. When I went to hug my dad, he swung me around happily. Welcome home, baby girl. When my feet touched the ground, I was excited. Are we going to have my famous gumbo? Well, of course we are. I know it's your favorite, and I always make it for you when you come see me. I clap my hands together, and my dad grabbed my luggage. Come on, honey. Let's eat. I'm sure you're hungry. I could hardly wait. I set up the table as my dad brought over a huge orange pot that he always made his gumbo in. Sandy brought over some dinner rolls, and the aroma was heavenly. He poured me a large helping, and I eagerly grabbed it. I took one bite inside. Tastes like summer. My dad laughed, and I continued to chow down. My gumbo was not nearly as good. I said, pulling the shrimp tail off. My dad chuckled, winking. It's because I got a secret ingredient. After dinner, we all cleaned up and played a few board games. Then I finally flopped onto my bed. I woke up when I heard rustling. I opened the door to investigate and I saw my dad leaving the house. I followed him and he went out to the barn where the horses were. I kept my distance as he moved a bunch of the hay bales revealing a trap door. He opened it up and left the hatch open as he took his lantern down. I could hear him cursing as I neared. The smell became rancid and I had to cover my nose. I peeked down and I could see three people chained up against the wall. Two young girls and a young boy. They were no older than 15. They were naked and had duct tape over their mouths. My father walked out of my line of sight before coming back with a machete in one hand. Sorry, I need to make more gumbo, he said as he approached one of the girls. The girl jerked violently, shaking her head. And I had to act fast, so I screamed out, Dad, no! He jerked up and stared at me with wide eyes. I want to try him next, not her. I fostered animals in my spare time. I took care of the wounded, and once they were back on their feet, I would return them into the wild. I guess it was kind of a hobby for me. They told me that there was someone in need of help in my pond. A small human laying on a lily pad no bigger than my thumb. I scooped her up and she didn't move or try to swim away. She just laid there, lifelessly, in my hand. I took her home and made a small bed out of tissues and placed her in a shoebox. I left the lid open as I went to bed that night. When I woke up, she was still in the box. I would bring her bits of food, but she wouldn't touch it. This continued for almost three days. I worried that she would starve, so I started to tell her about the food and how it's made. She would turn and look at me sometimes, but she didn't eat. I kept trying until one night I made spaghetti. It was in the middle of talking when I tilted the plate too much. A meatball rolled off and stopped before her. She picked up the meatball covered in marinara sauce and took a bite out of it. 
Her first words to me were, Yummy. She became livelier as the days passed, and she would even sit there on my shoulder. I was worried that she would fall, so I started buying shirts with pockets. She was with me everywhere I went. I bought her a dollhouse, doll-sized clothing, and even a small bed so she could sleep. She always cheered me up, and before I knew it, my whole life revolved around her. One day when I was eating dinner, she finally told me why she was outside in the middle of the pond. She told me that she had a family, but they were murdered. She had escaped by swimming away, and told me, There are others like me. They hunt and eat us. They're cannibals. That night I felt anxious and sat up in my bed and stared at the dollhouse. She was sleeping soundly in her bed. I got up and sat in the kitchen for god knows how long. I had to stop them somehow. Before I knew it, I had fallen asleep on the table. I jerked awake and headed back to my room. I opened the door and peeked into her room, only to see her missing. My heart stopped. I looked closer and there were specks of red all over. A small man about her size stood in the corner of her room, hunched over, and its face was completely distorted. He smiled, teeth sharp and crooked, mishapping red eyes locked with mine as he held out a gold nugget about the size of a dollar coin. Here's your half, as promised. Someone banged at my door. My boyfriend and I exchanged puzzled glances before he chirped up happily. Pizza. He got off the couch as he grabbed the remote to pause the movie. He came back, but with a square box, not a pizza box. I stared at the box in his hand. What's that? He handed it to me. A package for you. I took it. There was no shipping label, just my name in black sharpie. Taking a knife, I cut the tape and opened it slowly. I removed most of the packing peanuts to find a scuffed up looking magic eight ball. I picked it up and shook it and turned it over. The little thing flipped before it landed on the number 32. I was confused. I did it again and a third time, shaking it a couple more times but the answer was always 32. I thought you were supposed to ask that eight ball a question then it answers like yes or no or something. Damien shrugged and dug into the box while I continued to shake the 8-ball. Hey, look at this. He pulled out a note. The Wonder 8-ball goes around and around, so pass it quickly or you'll be out. If you're the one that holds it last, you are out. He scratches his head and handed me the messily written note. I took it as I passed him the 8-ball. This is kind of creeping me out, I said, checking the note. He shook the eight ball and examined it, just as I did before, and then the doorbell rang. Oh, that must be the pizza. He tossed the ball back into the box, and I stared at it before placing the note on top and closing it. We resumed our movie, and once it was over, we went to bed, but I couldn't sleep that night. Something fell off. I tried to wake up Damien, but he was dead asleep. I don't know how long it was, but I eventually fell asleep. When I woke up, it was still dark. I got up to the bathroom where I went to brush my teeth. Only when I heard a thump in the apartment did I stop. I quietly walked over to Damien, refusing to look away from the door. I shook him lightly, 
Damien. But he didn't budge. I decided to grab the gun in our nightstand. I cocked it and readied myself. I walked slowly and gripped the door handle. I took a deep breath, swung it open, flipping the lights. I held the gun steady as I scanned the apartment. Once I was sure that no one was there, I lowered the gun inside. I turned back to look at Damien's sleepy body. Idiot, I could have died. I took a step forward and my feet made contact with the ball. My heart froze as I stared at it. I picked up the ball and turned it over and it was now showing 33. You know, it's really funny. In a maximum security prison filled with murderers and rapists, the worst thing that they can do is leave you completely alone. Solitary confinement. The human brain needs input or it quickly descends into a horrifying madness of its own company. In 2086, when the world government fell into dictatorship, capital punishment became very common. However, it was solitary confinement that people feared. That was reserved just for treason. I spent my working life making solitary confinement cells and carrying out the confinement. Here's how it works. The cells are molded to exactly fit the condemned. They are human shaped coffins, arms out to the side at a 30 degree angle, legs at 45 degrees apart. For their insertion process, the traders are sedated. The eyes, the ears, the mouth are not damaged, but are all sealed permanently shut. An automatic breathing tube is inserted into the throat. Three IV lines are inserted to feed nutrients. We use three lines cause of mechanical failure on one. Catheters are inserted to handle waste. The condemned are sealed and buried in a very public trader graveyard with enough supplies to last 80 years, but to be considered dead from that day. Nasty, right? Well, that's been my job for the last 20 years, and I'm pretty numb to the idea of it. One person a day entered the trader's graveyard. This was so the person's story could be featured on the evening news, along with their frenzied begging for a pardon it hasn't caused me distress in many years. That was until last week when I was convicted of treason. I can't really argue, I'm guilty. But after seeing the things I've seen, it is surprising I turned to murder. The regime needs to be brought down. This barbaric practice of solitary confinement needs to end now, but it will take a better man than me to achieve that. Today, I woke up from my sedation my eyes and mouth sealed shut. Deafening silence and dazzling blackness greeted my panicked brain. Fight or flight response kicked in and I chose between zero options. I couldn't move an inch. Even my fingers were molded in place. I just kept thinking about all the people I put down here. All the things I wish I'd done differently. I couldn't have been down here for more than a week and I would have chose death if I could. I would give anything to take back those treasons I committed, the 7,000 people I killed. I only did that to save others from untold suffering. I did it when they were sedated, a syringe of air into their veins to cause cardiac arrest. One murder each day for 20 years. It's just me alive down here, living life of a traitor. When he was born, his mother died. 
This was common. Nobody thought much of it. The next day, his father died. Electrocution, they said. The boy was left alone in the house until someone walked past and saw the dead body. The boy was put into the orphanage. The older kids avoided him. Knowing that he had a curse on him, they didn't want to die. However, the younger ones didn't stay away. They played with the boy. He was happy with them, except for one. The next day, all of the young children that played with the boy died. All except the mean one. After all, if you were in a flower field, which flower would you pick? The pretty one or the ugly one? You, you monster, he screamed. The boy looked down in embarrassment. It wasn't his fault that everyone died. At 30 years old, a considerable amount of deaths happened. All because of the boy, or man. Tired of his curse, the man stood atop the tallest building. He was ready to jump. He knew the world would be a better place without him. I'm sorry to whoever I killed. I shall not meet you in the afterlife, he murmured before jumping. The wind whistled in his ears. However, he landed on something soft. A trampoline? No. No, it was warm. He looked down and saw the body of the little girl he just squashed. You've been hooked up to machines for most of your life. Tubes and wires and drips. It hurts when you breathe. It hurts when you move. Hell, it even hurts when you sleep. You dream about not existing and it fills you with sickening dread. The prospect of it all ending one day is even more terrifying than the pain. You don't want to die. You want to live. Not exist, but truly live. You feel yourself slipping a little more every day, so you say fuck it, might as well give it a shot. And one day, he's there, standing by your bed. He doesn't look anything like you imagined. No horns, no fire or brimstone, just a chill surfer bro, with the clearest emerald eyes you've ever seen. Heh, <laughs> wanna go immortal, huh? He asks cheerfully. 110 in originality, but I can make it happen. H how The real question is why? Wh why Where's the fun in answering that? <laughs> you should know, though. Everything comes at a price. What's the price? You'll never die. He shrugs. That's it. That's the price. I... I do not understand. Look... I haven't got all day. Are you in or not? You nod hesitantly. Marvelous! He grins. Please enjoy your immortality, and remember, no takesies backsies. And with that, he is gone. Was he ever even there? He couldn't have been, right? Just a fever dream? But then, you start to feel better. Your head clears up, and that ever-creeping abyss fades away, leaving in its wake life. The doctors are baffled, a miracle they call it, exactly the opposite maybe, but you don't care. You're alive, living, 
and that's all that matters. You live on the edge, get stabbed a few times, shot once, beaten to a pulp in a dark alley, but you remain. In mere minutes, you're as good as new, immortal and larger than life. Doesn't work like that, though. There's always a catch, always a yin to the yang. So, one day, they snatch you up, hogtie you, blindfold you, throw you in the back of a van, and probably had eyes on you for a while. You wake up in a bright room, smell like formaldehyde, smells like a hospital, it smells like hell. They make sure to keep you conscious, something to do with the procedure. Apparently, the organs like it when you're screaming in mind-numbing agony. You feel everything, every incision, every cut, every jerk of the saw. They rip and they tear, pull away at your sinew and muscles and flesh. It's all growing back, right? No need to be gentle about it. In a day, they can probably pull out a warehouse full of fresh organs from your body, out with a heart, or a lung, or a liver, or even a kidney. Pack it up and ship it away, and there you'll remain alone in constant fear and agony. But there's no soothing darkness to crawl into, no abyss waiting for you. It's like he told you, you'll never die. What are those? Callum peered at the coats hanging on the rack. They looked like they were made of rough brown leather their crude brown stitching visible on the sleeves. They swayed back and forth lightly in the wind. Human jackets made from fresh skin. They're all the rage right now. Would you... would you like to buy one? How much are they? Sixteen dollars each. Callum shrugged, then handed the salesman the money. The salesman pocketed it and grinned at Callum. I hope it's all worth it. Callum thought as he picked up one of the jackets and slung it over his shoulder. The wind howled that night, sending chills throughout the house. Icy fingers wrapped around Callum's face and hands and danced down his spine. He shivered and wrapped his arms around his knees, rocking back and forth for warmth. Then he remembered his new jacket. Quickly he went to fetch it and put it on. Oh, how warm and comfortable it was. It was like being swaddled in a soft brown blanket. The fibers whispered into his skin, massaging it with soft brown hands. Within moments, Callum had fallen asleep on the couch, with a smile on his face. The next day, the sun had come out strong, and it was blazing hot. Callum was melting inside his jacket, but the zipper seemed to have vanished, disappeared. Callum felt around, even the back, but he couldn't find it anywhere. So he went to work with the jacket on, thanking the heavens there was air conditioning in the office. But by lunch, the brown fibers had wrapped around the blackness of his trousers, growing over them like weeds in a garden. By the evening, the brown had crept up his neck and onto his face, the brown fibers blossoming over his lips, nose, and ears. Yellow crept into his eyes. Fangs emerged out of his teeth. Nails sharpened into thick claws. Muscles hardened, 
rippled under thick brown skin and fibers that waved. With a guttural growl that sounded nothing like the old Callum, Callum left the house. It was a cool and breezy night. It was almost midnight. Selena was waiting for a taxi to come pick her up. She had gone to a friend's house to play cards and drank and drank until her cheeks were red. Time had flown by and she had emerged from the house hours later giggling like a little girl and with a stagger in her step. She did not hear the rustle in the bushes. She did not feel yellow eyes watching her. She didn't even scream. The salesman was waiting in exactly the same spot as the previous day, hands in his pocket. Something rustled. One of his precious pets, wearing his precious jacket, came trotting towards him. He deposited a dead woman at his feet. The salesman laughed. He pulled out his scissors and needle and began his work, stitching a fresh new jacket for sale. Our house has two basements, one under the other. The lower one's a secret, but Pa told me all about it. I ain't never seen it now, but Pa says it's where he keeps the shine. I ain't never seen a jug of that neither, but it's probably best I don't. That way I'd have plausible deniability if the law ever came round. The law's a rival, that's what Pa says. He says if they found out what was in that basement, the one under the normal one, our whole world would come crashing down. I don't want no trouble for Pa, but the secret, I ain't never been much good at keeping him. Pa only told me about the moonshine on account of my hearing screams below when I was in the top basement searching for a file for the chainsaw. Pa said it was my Uncle Ralph, cutting his hand on a broken jug. I like Ralph. He's a generous sort and modest to boot. When we started getting new horses at the house, Pa said it was Ralph who gave him. Now Ralph, he don't want no thanks or nothing. So he told me that he ain't had a hand in them horses making their way into our possession. Pa must be using them horses right too. Every time he gets a new one, I hear another voice in the secret basement. More employees for the shine business, I guess. Pa's awful smart. There's a horse trail that passes right through our land. With him taking the shine by a horse, the law would never suspect a thing. Well, they wouldn't have. But like I said, I never been too good at keeping secrets. I only told my best friends about the secret basement. Just little Paul, Ira Blanton, and Eddie Wallace. I was proud of my pa. He weren't just a mechanic. He's a bona fide outlaw tycoon. One of them three must have told because, two weeks later, we had a whole mess of lawmen at our house. I remember what pa said to him. Because it put a wrinkle in my brow. Y'all don't understand. They ain't what they seem. Take me to jail, I'll confess to whatever you want, but whatever you do, 
do not let them free. I'd never seen my past so scared before, but them lawmen didn't listen. I seen them bring up four men from the secret basement, a torture dungeon, the lawmen called it. Right off they pegged my pa for a murderer, asked him where the bodies were, screamed at him. Pa just looked at them four men with a real wide-eyed look, and then with a shiver in his voice he said, The bodies are all around us. That was that. They took Pa away, and each of them four men stole one of our horses. The white one, the red one, the black and the pale. Can you tell me another scary story tonight? Another one? Jimmy, you're much too young to be hearing spooky stories every night. But the other stories you told weren't really scary. I want a real scary story tonight. Oh, really? Okay, you little punk, no pumping the brakes on this one. But no waking me up if you're scared. Deal? Deal. <sighs> okay, I think I've got a good one. So, once there was a woman, and she was very lonely. An accident happened when she was young, and left her skin severely burned and deformed. All she wanted in life was a loving partner and the ability to have a child. She wanted a child more than anything. This story doesn't sound very scary at all. Well, if you interrupt, I can't really get to the scary part. Now, where was I? Ah, yes. A woman and she had really bad skin. People would call her names, like Freddy Krueger or the Human Pizza. <laughs> human Pizza? Oh, that's funny, huh? We'll just wait till you hear the rest. So, the woman knew that she would never be able to find a man to love her and give her a child, so she would have to find another way. She began going out at night and peering through the neighborhood windows, looking for the perfect child. Then, one fateful night, she glanced through a large window, kind of like the one here in your room, and she spotted the perfect little boy. It looked like my window? Yes, perhaps it was your window. And so, that night, she managed to get the window open and quietly snuck in to grab the boy. Let's call him Jimmy. Mom, you could stop the story now. I don't want to- Oh no, we're just getting to the scary part. So she went to grab little Jimmy, but then she heard the doorknob turn. It was the boy's mom, so she quickly ran and hid in the closet. As she peered through the small crack in the closet and saw the mother lovingly tucking a small child in, she began to feel enraged. It just wasn't fair that this woman was able to enjoy what she had always coveted in life. So, so what happened? So, 
the woman couldn't control her anger any longer. She lunged from the closet and began attacking the mother. She managed to grab the lamp off the nightstand and began bashing the mother repeatedly until her final breath. She then scooped little Jimmy out of bed and brought him back home to be with her, and they lived happily ever after. Mommy, that story was too scary. What if that woman comes through my window at night? Oh, honey, it was just a scary story. And I promise that I won't let anybody take you away. Okay. Mommy, next time, instead of a scary story, can you tell me how you got your boo-boos? She vanished when I was a baby. My father always maintained that she left us, but I know the truth. She told me how he killed her that fateful day and threw her body in the big river near the highway. She would visit me every night. I couldn't see her, but I would hear her whisper raspily on account of the choking she received. She loved me and tried to save me from him. When he would get agitated, especially after drinking, she would make noises to distract him. Sometimes it would be a knock on the door, other times running footsteps or tapping on the window. He would go to investigate and forget about me. She was always watching over me. Once I sneaked out with my friends and got into trouble. He had to come to get me at 3 a.m. He was very angry. He scolded me while I sobbed on the bed. He took out his belt. She flashed on the periphery of his vision. He turned around and left as if in a trance. In one of my outbursts, I accused him of killing her. His expression indiscernible, he mumbled. She ran away with the mailman. I laughed out loud. Can his made-up story be any more cliché? She told me about the horrific abuse. Nobody would ever think he was capable of such torture. I hated him. I knew he would have killed me too if not for her. She plotted for my freedom. He had to die. There was no other way to be completely sure. The monster that he was, it would be a fitting end. She whispered encouragingly in my ear as I stood with the knife raised over his prone body. Pill-induced stupor will ensure I get no resistance. My bags were ready. One blow and I'm free. I raised my arm, ready to finish this in one fell swoop. Knock, knock. I hesitated, knife in mid-air. I mustered up my slightly dented courage to prepare again. Knock, knock. She stood at the door contritely. Wringing her hands at my bewildered sight, she hugged me. I jumped away as if electrocuted. Impossible! Yet there she was, in the flesh, I might add. She came in apologizing profusely while I stood to the side, dumbfounded. She asked for father. He has passed out drunk, I lied. She lamented how heartbroken he is because she ran away with the mailman. I'm glad she couldn't hear my jaw drop. We were a family again. Father forgave her, must have truly loved her. 
I never told anyone how close I came to killing my father. I'm still trying to figure out who she is and why she wants to kill my father. They asked me why am I suddenly religious and insist on wearing a cross all the time. How do I tell them that's the only thing that stops the hoarse, raspy voice in my ears? The week after my fifth birthday, I lost my first tooth. I was so excited when my mom told me to put it under the pillow. She said the tooth fairy would come and give me candy for it. The next morning, mom said she came into my bedroom last night to see if I had left my tooth out and asked why she didn't find one. I didn't get it. I told her, I did. She left me some candy. As I scarfed down the last bite of my Fruit Loops and ran upstairs to get ready for school, I moved so quickly, I almost didn't notice a confused look on her face. I'm glad my mom didn't come into my room earlier last night, because after she took my tooth and gave me some Sour Patch Kids, the Tooth Fairy told me that if I brought her more teeth, she'd give me all the candy I could eat. She said that people didn't like to give their teeth away because they want all the candy for themselves, and that they should share. All I'd have to do is put a special medicine in their drink that will make them sleep so that she could come get their teeth. Then I could have all the candy for being such a good helper. She said that it would be our little secret. That night, I put the special medicine in my daddy's beer, mommy's wine, and my little brother's apple juice. I was so excited that I almost couldn't sleep. I don't even remember the tooth fairy coming in. The police took me to some place called an asylum after our Aunt Lucille came to the house the next morning and found my parents and brother dead in their beds. They said their teeth and tongues had been ripped out and had bled to death. The police asked me where the teeth were, and what I did with them, and why my parents, and why'd I do it at all. I kept telling them that she did it, and asking them where my candy was. That was ten years ago. She still comes and visits me all the time though I don't want to talk to her. They say I'm not supposed to. The only way to get her to go away is to give her teeth. I tell them, but they don't want to listen, so I just give her mine. If I pull and twist just a little each day, they come out easily enough. I don't have many left now. I hope she stops soon. It was my ninth week attending Slimmers, and as I shuffled into the hall from the bitter wind, I was closely followed by a gaggle of women clutching their weight diaries. Inside, everyone paid their money and weighed in. A pound off here, three pounds on there, each person's new weight recorded disappointedly or joyously in their little book. Then they purchased the tiny overpriced treat bars that, amazingly, they were allowed to consume as long as they had starved themselves all day. I was one of the few men at the club, and I quickly learned that every woman had a different reason for being there. Lack of confidence, health, social aspect, getting away from their partner for an hour. Some didn't need to lose weight at all. Then you had the regulars who drank gin in our takeaways every weekend, and then wondered why they always gained or stayed the same. Everywhere I looked, I saw bingo wings, love handles, double chins, and saddlebags. Our consultant was a plump middle-aged woman called Carol. She was not a glowing advert for the group's aims. 
Okay, girls, she would always say, ignoring the embarrassed men in the room. Let's see who Slimmer of the Week is. Won't be me, shouted Delia. Star Week this week. Star Week was the code word for period. It was like a get-out-of-jail card if you put a few pounds on. One of the other men, Jeremy, cringed every time someone mentioned Star Week. It's Lisa, Carol exclaimed, again. The women clapped half-heartedly. Lisa stood up from her chair and hobbled forward. She had lost three stone in the past two months. She was still really fat, but very pretty. She told everyone she was single. How many weeks is it now, Lisa Babes? Carol asked, already knowing the answer. Eight, Lisa replied. Carol handed her a paper certificate, a bowl of fruit, and an award sticker. Lisa looked unwell tonight, and Carol commented as such. I'm okay, Lisa said, turning pale, her skin a sickly sweaty gray. Carol tried to catch Lisa as she collapsed. The women gasped, and Haiti, who I knew was a nurse, rushed forwards. Lisa was bleeding through her dress, and Haiti told Carol to call an ambulance. The nurse lifted up Lisa's dress and saw her body covered in stitches. Pus and blood seeped out from where some of the stitches had opened or become infected. What have you done, Lisa, you silly girl? Carol asked, upset at the sight of Lisa's butchered body. Lisa cried out. My boyfriend said he would leave me if I didn't lose weight really quickly. He calls me fatso all the time. Lisa fell unconscious. Haiti said Lisa had been cutting chunks out of herself. After Lisa went to hospital, I looked at the disgusting stains on the floor where she had laid. One thing was certain. I really needed to improve my stitching for when old Fatso comes home. I'm a very lucky girl. I'm lucky because I have a roof over my head. I'm lucky because I have a good education. I'm lucky because I have food in my stomach. I'm lucky because I had a lot of friends. I'm lucky because my family was nice. I'm lucky because I took judo classes when I was younger. I'm lucky because my childhood home was lovely. I'm lucky because my father taught me survival skills. I'm lucky because my family kept a lot of provisions in case of emergencies. I'm lucky because my parents taught me to be responsible. I'm lucky because when the sirens echoed through my city, I was awake to hear them. I'm lucky because I got to say goodbye to my friends. I'm lucky. Because when the tall men emerged from the underground, we weren't close to any hot spots. I'm lucky because we survived for weeks on the stashed canned goods and bottled water that my parents had collected. I'm lucky because when we had to go out in search of food, my father died protecting me. I'm lucky. Because my mother sheltered my eyes from the tall men so I wouldn't have to see their gaunt faces and freakishly long bodies. I'm lucky. Because when the storm started to roll in and our house was destroyed, 
My mother sacrificed herself to save me and my little brother. I'm lucky because I am a fast runner so the tall men couldn't get me. I'm lucky because I only lost my rucksack as we ran. I'm lucky because my brother survived 158 days by my side. I'm lucky because his body fed me for a few weeks. I'm lucky because I figured out how to hunt the tall men. I'm lucky because although bitter, the tall man's flesh was edible. I'm lucky because I was able to find a new refuge in an abandoned bunker. And I'm lucky because the bunker held years worth of supplies. I'm lucky because now I don't have to go out unless I choose to. And I'm lucky the tall men haven't found me yet. And when they do, I'm going to be ready. I've survived this far. I'm a survivor. I'm a hunter. And I'm a very lucky girl. Stitch sat on his bed, head slumped over onto his knees. You'd never seen a sadder sight than my boy in that moment. All the pain of the world resting inside him. Not that either of us are asking for your sympathy, you understand. It's just how it was. I stood in the bedroom doorway for a little, watching but saying nothing, hoping for improvement. But nothing changed, of course. And performing my fatherly duty, I cracked and said, Hey, son, what's the matter? Stitch sighed silently, almost imperceptibly, something only a doting father notices. His pale face, wrinkled up into a leathery frown, seemed to answer me. Everything, Dad. I sat next to him and placed an arm around his shoulder. How long can we go on like this, huh? We're both falling apart. Stitch was my reason for everything. My second child. Or my first child, depending on how you look at these things. He'd been Eric back then, before the car slammed into him. Before I dug him up and filled him like a sack with fresh new organs, then stitched him back together. Always someone different, and always the same. That was my stitch. I propped Stitch up, but he only slumped over again. His insides must have been rotting. I laid my boy down in his bed and tucked him in. I'll find you some new stuffing tonight, okay? If you go straight to sleep. He nodded gratefully, with only a little help. I kissed his forehead. Love you, Pa, he seemed to say as I turned out the lights. Sweet boy, my stitch. Love you too. I think I've finally reached my limit. I think if I keep this to myself any longer, I may well explode. I have to tell. 
and it's not because it's suddenly become unbearable. To the contrary, dealing with it every day isn't that severe. It's more that the accumulation of days has started taking its toll, weighing me down and making me captive of my own heart. There simply comes a time in a young man's life when he wants to be known for who he is, not the pretend version we all put out there for the world to see, but the real person, the one deep inside. I can't even say for sure when I became fully aware. All I know is that as time went by, it started becoming clear to me that I wasn't interested in the same things most of my friends were, my male friends in particular. And there's the conditioning we receive from the time we begin assimilating the outside world. All those messages from television and the internet, from music, from movies, even from all the people in our lives, telling us what the world expects a young man to be. All those things have become anathema to me. Sure, society has trended toward tolerance, but those who stray too far from the stereotype will, at some point, be forced to reckon with their differences. My father, he's a good man, but speaking of stereotypes, he's the poster child of what society expects a man to be. He's never spoken derogatorily to me about people who are different, nor has he laid out any archetypal design of what he expects me to be. But still, him living the life he lives sends a pretty clear message, one that's impossible to ignore. I think that's the hard part for me. I love him, and the last thing I want is for him to be disappointed in me. Still, at the end of the day, I have to be true to myself, or else I'll be no good for anyone. I approach him and Mom at the breakfast table. I, I, I have something important to tell you. They both look at me with interest and love, as they always have. I take a breath and steal my nerve. It's, it's like this. I kill people. I kill people all the time. Well, not all the time. That would be impossible, and I'd get caught. But more than once or twice. The thing is, I like the way it makes me feel. I wait for their shock. Or outrage, maybe or anything that would merit the gravity of what I just told them. Other than a small smile from my mother, they hardly react at all. You see? Mom says to Dad. I told you. My father puts his hand on my shoulder and looks at me with pride. I think your father might have something to tell you, Mom says. Something about us. Drunk Drive by user A Hawaiian Shirt. Dan understood he had made a grave mistake. With the nearly empty whiskey bottle in his lap and the pistol pressed against his head, he stood frozen at the edge of his bed. His friends had warned him time and time again not to drive after so many drinks. They called him reckless, they called him lucky. They called him stupid. He knew they were right, but he only lived a few minutes away from the bar. It took no time at all to get home. No matter how foggy his head was or how blurred his vision became, night after night he pounded drinks until his words slurred and his legs grew weak. Each time he got behind the wheel, each time he made it home. He understood tonight was different. Tonight he had made a big mistake. He sat on his bed, seeing the remnants of the whiskey in the bottle. 
wanting to drink more but finding himself unable to. Dan understood tonight he had ruined his life and the life of another. When he limped his truck in the driveway with one working headlight and a crumpled hood, he decided what he would do before he even made it to the front door. He would take the easy way out instead of seeing the heartache on so many faces. He didn't want to see. He just wanted it to go away. He just wanted it to be over. But as he sat on his bed, gun to his head, he found himself unable to close his eyes unable to hide from what he had done. Dan understood he didn't see the woman in time. She was unlocking her car on the oncoming side of the street, and when he swerved in her direction, she had nowhere to go. He knew when he looked down at her wheezing body that it was too late. There was no way to save her. He understood when he got back into the truck and left her there to die that his life was over as well. So he went home and got the pistol out of the closet, along with a drink to go. He understood it was the end. There was no going back. He didn't understand, however, how she appeared before him now, horribly mangled, head cocked as she stared at him a few feet away. He didn't understand why she was moving closer, and why he couldn't look away each wheezing breath getting closer and closer as her disfigured legs limped her forward. Worst of all, he didn't understand why when he pulled the trigger, the gun didn't work. Alright, so check this out. A cold, wet, dreary day. I couldn't help but let out a chuckle. How fitting that my ending would be as gloomy and miserable as my short life had been. Despite the occasion, I've never felt happier. I have to keep reminding myself to wipe the huge grin off my face, though. This is my funeral, after all. A somber occasion. As I scan the room, I make a mental note of everybody who took the time to be here and their reactions. All nine of them could even crack double digits. What a lonely and pathetic life I led. But that's the key. Led, as in past tense. Now, I can begin anew and lead the life that I've always envied. The life I deserve. I take a seat and I listen to my mother's scripted piece on how wonderful I was and how much she'll miss me. Crocodile tears stream down her face she must adore all the sympathy and admiration she's receiving masquerading as a grieving mother. Hmm. This may be the longest I've ever heard her speak about me without slurs or unflattering comparisons to Brother Dearest. He was the blessing, and I was the afterbirth that slithered out, as she put it. I feel the anger inside me, and I want to lash out at her, but I force myself to calm down. I'm not that guy anymore. He's dead now. Finally, the charade winds down and my casket is lowered into its final resting place. The small group of people who pretended to give a shit about me or my insignificant life have filed out. This will likely be the final time that anybody else visits my gravesite, and I'm so grateful for that. 
I toss the vial and syringe in a nearby trash can and walk back to my grave. I lay down over the freshly covered mound and I press my ear firmly to the dirt. It's incredible. Six feet underground and I can still make out the sound of muffled crying and horrified screams. I know we never got along, but thank you, brother. You've given me a wonderful life. I'd like to say thanks, truly. After all, none of what's about to happen would be possible without you, so I'll give credit where credit is due. You see, I was satisfied with the way things were before, back when Mikey was young and impressionable. I'd whisper a few insults at him and get him provoked enough to break something. I'd tell him how ugly his acne made him look, how his scrawny physique made him weak, how no one would ever love him. Naturally, he'd get angry and try to start a fight with someone, be it his parents or his peers. And the entire time you were there, desperately trying to calm him down. I didn't mind it, though. After all, the damage had already been done. But then, something happened. Something I didn't anticipate. Mikey evolved. His acne began to clear away. He started putting on muscle. Girls were giving him attention for the very first time. Mikey was growing up before my very eyes, and I hated every bit of it. But you were ecstatic, showering him with compliments, motivating him at every opportunity. It made me sick. I tried getting through to him, but to no avail. For the first time, I was the one being ignored and I don't like being ignored. So I came up with a plan. A plan so sick and twisted that it disturbed even myself. I decided I'd let you win our little game of psychological tug-of-war, if only for a moment. Thanks to you, Mikey quit his porn addiction. He finally worked up the confidence to talk to women. Eventually, he met someone that lit up his whole world brighter than even you could. I wanted to slap that proud look right off your face for good, but I had to have patience. Because you see, nothing lasts forever. It was the text messages that first caught his attention. She claimed they were from family, but I know bullshit when I hear it. I started sowing the doubts into his mind. Nothing too over the top, but just enough to get him curious. Mikey did most of the work on his own. He started investigating, every day finding more of her behavior suspicious. The last straw? Walking in on his first love fucking his best friend. <sighs> now look at him. See that murderous look in his eyes? You begged him not to buy the pistol, not to get anyone hurt, but it's too late now. I've already won. After all these years, my patience paid off. You see... Mikey was always meant to be a monster. It was only a matter of time. Wait, something isn't right. Why is he shooting blanks? He hasn't even driven to her place yet. Mikey, you idiot, what are you doing? Why are you crying? Wait! Shit, no, don't! 
I signed up for this new service called Cutoff a few months ago. It's really neat stuff. Essentially, once a day, I receive an unmarked tape in the mail. They're supposed to be a mystery, but I like to label them with something like Mary, Generator, or Thomas, Drill, or Mark, 38 Special, or something. Bare bones, I know, but it distinguishes well enough. Makes it easier to sort my catalog. But the thing about cutoff tapes is that they are meant to keep you thinking. I'm not some sort of pervert looking to get my rocks off or anything, because I'm not seeing any actual death. It's just a neat little piece of art to finish off my day with. Susan Hammer is today's tape. She walks through the halls of a hospital, checking in on her patients and doing, well, hospital stuff. I don't care enough about Susan to learn that much about her line of work, to be honest. She stops by the grocery store to pick up some things on her way home afterwards, recognizing someone named either Mary or Annie. Hard to tell. The audio's always a bit muffled. And chatting up a storm in the process. After that whole ordeal is finally over, the tape can finally get to the good stuff. Susan makes some popcorn sits down in her recliner and starts watching Seinfeld on her old box television. She doesn't see the man behind her chair. Cut-off tapes never show the impact, just everything before. You just hear the sounds of it all while a picture of the tool used in the recording process pops up on screen. Like I said, gets the juices flowing. But it's the strangest thing. That all being said, I want more. I don't want to hear Susan and her hammer. I want to watch. I want to meet the people in charge of production. God, I, I want to help create some of this art. So, I finally track them down through the return address, and... Lucky me, it's right where they filmed Michael Hacksaw. I'd like to shake his hand when I meet the genius who came up with this stuff, <laughs> because it is really something special. Would avant-garde work here? I feel like it would, but I've never been one of those cinephile types. Um, it's empty. Nobody's there. Nothing. Not even a fucking stain on the ground to show some semblance of appreciation for how much dedication I've had for these films. Day in and day out, I watch these tapes, and all I get is a two-hour waste of gas money in return. <sighs> but I see that I have a new tape at my doorstep when I get home, and I can't help but watch it nonetheless. Old habits die hard, right? And when I turn on the television, I can see myself pulling out of the driveway. When the forests burned, he had remained steadfast. Yes, this is bad, but it's not the end times. It will be fine. We can still turn it around. Today's forecast is... When the oceans boiled, he had remained resilient. Who eats fish anyway? 
I certainly don't. Anyway, today's forecast is... When oceans rose and whole civilizations were wiped away, he had remained optimistic. Let's be real, a global population loss of 50% seems bad, sure, I get that, but that's a lot less people to damage the planet now, so, you know, let's look at this as a silver lining, yeah? Anyway, today's forecast is... When the oxygen began to deplete and society began to crumble, he wore an oxygen mask and continued regardless. Not to get too political, but maybe we should listen to the scientists now. Today's forecast is... When the rich fled to the stars, promising to find a new world, he suspected it was a lie, but repeated it to give hope. They will be back. Have faith. Today's forecast is... When he was moved to a government bunker run by an insurrection group as the strongest hurricanes ravaged the cities, he tried to forget about the nuclear power plants that had exploded. How's everyone's rations tasting? Good, right? Today's forecast is... When they received news that the spacecraft had exploded before even reaching the moon, he felt strangely at peace. While it's a shame, don't forget the real fight was always going to be here at home. Anyway, today's forecast is... When he learned that the other bunkers were gone, he spoke to those that remained. Who's beginning to think we can still make it through this? I've had ideas. If we all go vegan, we can... Huh? We're not doing that? Okay. Today's forecast is... When he learned that this would be his last broadcast, he tried to stay strong, but a single tear descended his cheek. And that was the forecast. Don't worry. I'll be back tomorrow for more, but until then... Stay safe, everybody. Good night. I can't have kids. I'm infertile. God, I hate that word. It's so cold. I usually stick to I can't have kids. That stings a little less. No amount of fertility treatments made my body respond in any other way than a firm no. It didn't stop me from testing, hoping, trying, month after agonizing month. Another negative. My sigh filled the bathroom. I can't have kids. My phone lit up from the counter the words possible spam across the top of the screen. I always answered it in case it was a doctor calling to tell me that this was all a mistake and my life was clearly meant for someone else. I answered and a robotic voice buzzed into my ear. Please press 1. Sure, why not? Thank you, your order has been received. Confirmation number 782 Three three two zero nine eight seven. Then the line went dead. I redialed the number only to hear that the number was no longer in service. I spent the afternoon calling my bank and credit card companies to make sure there was no fraud activity on my accounts. A wasted afternoon. It was very likely just a spam call. 
I can't have kids. It didn't surprise me too much when my husband decided to leave. Everything we'd been through left me a shell of what I once was. I didn't blame him. He still had a chance to go have a family with someone else. I was alone when the doorbell rang. I opened the door to see a box sitting on my welcome mat. It had fragile stickers plastered all over, and my name scrawled across the top. There was no return address. I pulled the box inside my door, straining under the weight. Once it was in my foyer, I popped the tape off the sides and opened it. My curiosity far outweighed any anxiety of bombs or anthrax. You have to like your life at least a little bit to have some fear of losing it. My breath stopped in my chest. I can't have kids. But there she was. The bottom of the box was stuffed with fuzzy pink blankets. On top of the mound, nestled right in the middle, was a swaddle spotted with the tiniest red hearts. And she was inside. The most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I scooped her up and placed the swaddle against my chest. Her breath rumbled and rattled against my heartbeat. I guess she was maybe three weeks old. The smoky tendrils that rolled off her body wrapped around my arm. I rubbed my hand over her tiny face, rolling my thumb under the small dips where her eyes should be, but instead felt the smooth ash-colored skin under my fingertip. She was mine. I didn't care where she came from. I didn't care what she looked like. I don't care that she has an appetite that's unconventional. I'll mop the blood off the floor every day. I'll do whatever it takes. I can't have kids, but she's mine. During my interview for the position, the mother explained to me that her daughter had a slew of medical issues and was essentially an invalid. Unable to do anything for herself and confined to a wheelchair that just made my job that much easier, I thought. But the mother did warn me that they had to get rid of their prior babysitter after the first night due to issues. I wondered how anybody could mess this job up. When I arrived, the mother looked excited for a night out but a bit apprehensive at the same time. I'm sure it wasn't easy leaving her daughter with a stranger when she cared for her every moment of her life. But I reassured her that I was experienced with sick children, everything would be fine, and I would call if any issues arose. I admit, I was taken aback at my first sight of the girl. She looked gaunt, a dead blank stare with no emotion in the eyes. Curled, stiff-looking fingers and a dilapidated pose that made me wince. The mother informed me that she couldn't speak words, but was able to create sounds if need be. But when I tried to engage in any talk, she was silent with a blank, lifeless stare. We sat in front of the television, mindlessly watching show after show. At least I was, but I noticed that the girl's eyes were fixated on me. Then suddenly, she began to make sounds for the first time. Munch. She was finally able to whisper out, Munch. 
Maybe she was hungry, I thought. Then she spoke again. Home. She continued to repeat those two words, now becoming visibly upset and frustrated. Suddenly, she physically threw herself from the wheelchair and onto the floor. Although her bent and deformed fingers were essentially useless, she had managed to use her hands to drag a tiny book from under the couch. As I helped her back into the chair, she continued to repeat those two same words like a broken record. That's when I got a clear look at her mouth. To my horror, her tongue looked mangled, jagged cuts where the remainder should have been. Then I opened the book. It was a diary. The entries dated years prior. I felt the blood drain from my face as I read each line. The girl had documented countless examples of abuse. Times her mother forged doctor's notes, forcing her to undergo painful operations and being force-fed needless medication. Then, I saw what she had desperately been trying to convey to me, scribbled on a page, Munchhausen Syndrome by proxy. My jaw just about hit the floor as I reached for my phone to call 911, but as I looked up, I saw that the mother had returned. You stupid girl. Now, I'm going to have to get rid of another babysitter. Macy's mom is out of town for work, and Macy's alone for the night. Her mom wants her to lock up the house. Because the news says that there has been a murder in the area, and that the murderer remains at large. She does as she is told, and she hands off to bed. She wakes up at a sound outside her window, and shrieks when she sees a huge bald man with a beer fiddling with her window. The man's trying to stick a knife under the window to pry it open. Macy grabs her phone and dials 911. This is when the man notices her. Hey, stop that! Hang up the fucking phone! She tries to ignore him. The police answered. Benson Police Station. How can I help you? Please help me! The man murdered on the news that. that he. that he. At my home, he's trying to get through the window and... The man outside bangs on the window. Hang up! Fucking hang up! Hang up! Fuck! You stupid bitch! The man gets up and runs off. Ma'am? Ma'am, are you still there? Are you alright? She whispers away in tears. Yes, I'm alright. Please tell me your location and name. Do you know your address? Yes, it's... 84... S... W... Avenue... 788. My name is Macy. Thank you, Macy. We're sending officers over now. You're going to be alright. Can you please tell me what's happening? Is he carrying anything? Did you see any weapons? Yes, he had a large knife. I was sleeping when I woke up. Macy whips her head around when she hears a loud noise from the living room. Please, please, he's inside my house. 
They hit a front door. Please hurry. Her door shakes as it's rammed into from the other side. Fuck. Open the door. Deaf bitch. Open it. Fuck. Fuck. The man slams into the door over and over. The hinges ripping out of the wall. Macy stops, pleading to the assistant, begging him to leave her alone. Please, I'm sorry. Please stop. No, no, stop. She yells, choking on her words. The door was about to come down. His foot breaks the door out of place, spinning it to the side and knocking it to the floor. Macy swings the dresser door at him, but he just shuffles it back, the backing of it hitting her mouth and breaking a tooth. He walks up to her with a quiet rage. Fucking bitch. He grabs her by the hair and slams her face into the wall. He repeats this again and again as Maisie's thought slips away. Maisie slowly opens her eyes, noticing she's in the hospital room. Her mom shoots up, having been holding her hand. Oh, honey, thank God. Feeling dizzy, Maisie fumbles out her words. What's happened? The police, sweetie. They made it in time. They made it, baby. You're right. She moved her aching arm to the cast around her head. Had they? I live in a small village in the middle of nowhere with a population of about 500. The biggest scandal to ever hit our village was when our local doctor accidentally ran over one of his own patients. I am the town outcast, as I have no friends and live on the very edge of town. Everyone ignores my existence, but I don't care as I like it this way. Everything changed when I was recorded dragging two children out of a burning building. It then shows me running back inside to rescue their cat as they wept on the grass outside. The children and the cat were completely unharmed and I had a few first-degree burns on my arms and scalp. Their babysitter's body was dragged out of the ruined building two days later, and her body was almost unrecognizable as it was that badly burned. Ever since that day, people have been coming up to me in the street and calling me a hero. I quickly thank them before walking off as the tension freaks me out. I would prefer to go back to being the village outcast. Today, I was sitting at home when there was a knock on the door. I was surprised to see the children and their parents standing outside. The mother gave me a massive bear hug and kept thanking me for saving her darling angels. The father just gave me a simple nod. I looked down at the children's faces 
and they gave me matching smiles back. I shuddered as I remembered them stabbing their babysitter repeatedly in the eye while their house burned around them. I could see on their faces that they knew that no one would ever believe me.